key theme for this evening's talk is this is your life probably some of you are familiar with the television show that involves finding some I guess relatively well-known person and surprising them with the story of their life in the form of a book and various people and it's kind of interesting how that the sense of this is your life is a sort of like an accumulation of various significant events or people and the, uh, the view perhaps that we all have that this is in fact what our life is. To look as we may reflect on our life, what perhaps come to us in response to the idea of our life is various significant events, various significant moments. And yet what would it be for us to consider? What is the most important moment of your life? How would we respond to that phrase? The most important moment of your life. We might notice that our mind sort of maybe moves towards the past or the future in that, looking at maybe our birth as a significant event, maybe some achievement that we've brought about through great effort. Maybe this moment in which a significant relationship was established for us with a partner, perhaps the birth of a child. Perhaps we might look towards the future, our dreams of what will be the most significant or the most important thing. And yet, for all that, our mind will tend often to move towards significant events in the past, or imagined significant events of the future. Truly the most important moment of your life is right now. And the practice of meditation, the Dharma teachings that we are exploring, are essentially to understand what this means. There's a beautiful poem by Wu Men. Ten thousand flowers bloom in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. This is your life right here and right now. There is nowhere else that you can find it. There is nothing else that will reveal it to you, apart from where you are. And yet, for all that that is perhaps, in some ways, an evident truth to us, if we reflect on it, at the same time we tend to live our life in a way in which we're so often and so easily disconnected from where we are, not in touch with what's actually happening not conscious of our immediate experience. And we live in a world in which our tendency to think about things has, it seems, overwhelmed our capacity to actually experience them directly and consciously. The great forest master Ajahn Buddhadasa from Thailand, who was a, a great and much-loved teacher and I regard as one of my lineage, as the teacher of one of my teachers. He was once asked how would he describe the world? 
and after a few moments reflection he replied lost in thought and so much of our life it seems this is true we spend our life lost in thought not actually knowing where we are not really knowing what is going on somehow intoxicated by the the capacity that the thinking mind has to entice and to entangle us in its busyness and yet in all that we become lost so much in the unconscious thinking of our mind in that process we don't often realize that what is most important is to know where we are there's a there's a story of a businessman who was needing to go to an important meeting at a country manor and in driving through the um, back roads having thought to take a shortcut he was running late because he had a very busy life and uh, he, he got lost and so he stopped where there was a farmer working in his field and said excuse me sir can you tell me the way to Bridgestone Manor and the farmer said mm, sorry I don't know and he said uh, can you tell me what's the direction to the, um, the nearby town of Shiphay and he said oh actually I'm not sure and he says, well, can you tell me the name of this street that I'm on, this road? The farmer says, well, actually, I don't know what the name of it is. The businessman was getting rather frustrated and said, well, you know, you don't need to know very much at all, do you? And the farmer looked at him and said, no, that's right, but, you know, I'm not lost. <laughs> and we can spend a lot of time accumulating and pursuing many things without addressing that fundamental question of knowing where we are in light of which all the others are rather less significant it would seem we can experience ourselves as lost in our life lost in the world, lost in our mind in so many different ways so many different forms that we can meet that experience and yet essentially it comes down to a way in which our mind acts or reacts in relationship to the world that has the effect of us becoming lost and it's essentially the movement of mind that seeks to move towards to grasp hold of and to keep things that we want and that seeks to move away from to avoid and to escape things that we fear experiences and objects and people and situations this movement we experience as a push or a pull we're pushed away from that which we don't like we're pulled towards that which we want and we can find ourselves somewhat overwhelmed by this pattern overwhelmed by the power of the mind when it is in the grip of those forces and these are not sort of occasional or random things these are things that we can see moving in our hearts moving in our minds moving through this world in so many different ways sometimes in hearing Dharma teachings one can start to feel that they're really bad things fear and desire and certainly they don't serve us but we might easily also think I've got to get rid of them I've got to stop that and uh, maybe feel rather um, that it's a hopeless task because it seems that they're so predominant they're so so they're, they're everywhere we look if we look in this world we see it the movements of fear, the movements of desire people living their lives out driven by those forces 
and it seems to touch so many areas of our life and our world. How much time we've spent seeking to avoid, seeking to gain this or that. So I heard a lovely story um, from a good friend and a teacher of mine, Joseph Goldstein, a few years ago, where he uh, related the story told by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And in this, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was travelling from a hotel to a conference that he was attending every morning for a week. And I don't know if you uh, know anything of His Holiness, but he's a rather delightful character and uh, amongst other things known for his rather childish and innocent enthusiasm for electronics and electrical goods. And in this particular story he relates how how he was driving every morning down this um, same route to the conference, but take the taxi was taking him, and it just by coincidence went, coincidence went through the area in New York where all the shops selling electrical goods and electronic equipment were located. And he said he described how he drove down that street, and every day he said my eyes got wider and wider. So I looked through all of those windows, and. You know, after a week of driving past those windows every morning, I desperately wanted everything in those shops. And actually I didn't know what most of them were. <laughs> I think it says something rather, rather useful and rather beautiful to us about the, the prevalence and the power of that movement of wanting, of wanting things so many different ways that maybe it's not something that's going to come to an end just by watching our breath for a few minutes. But that we might learn to live wisely in the face of it. To see that the movement itself of wanting things needs to really be looked at, needs to be understood. We spend so much time being drawn off into the past or pulled out into the future. Just think, where do you go when you're not here? You know, you've probably all noticed today that some of the time you're not here. Where do you go? Past and the future. Where else is there to go except here when you're not here? And what draws us into the past or the future? Somehow it seems to be something interesting. We think we're going to get something by going there. Or, and that something's going to be more interesting than having to watch our breath or look at the discomfort in our knee. Or, Sometimes we think rather we're going to get something, it's at least it's an escape from where we are. That rather than being drawn, pulled towards it, we're more being pushed away from where we are. Because where we are at some level is uncomfortable or unfamiliar or we're somehow not at ease where we are. And this, this movement has the effect of, of keeping us constantly chasing after, constantly running towards, running away from. So that it's almost like we put our life on hold because we're trying to get something or somewhere else. It's like we're operating on autopilot much of the time. If we don't make the effort to be present, if we don't make the intention to pay attention, which is essentially what meditation is. Strip away the forms and the approaches and the particular subtleties of it. The essence is the intention to pay attention. We can't necessarily succeed in that intention, as you've, again, all had opportunity to find out, and I suspect most of you have. Some of the times we're able to be present, some of the times we're not. But we can establish that intention. 
But when that intention to be present isn't there, we just seem to be following almost like on a set of invisible rails, or, or as though we're caught in a groove, a groove in the mind that we can't seem to escape from. And any groove that we, we find ourselves in, the more times we travel the groove, the deeper it becomes. And you, know, you can do walking meditation and you walk back and forth enough. After a while you can see where you've walked in the grass. If you walk back and forth a few more times over these days in the same place, you'll see the grass starts to dry a little bit. If you do it for a few weeks, it will wither. It will go yellow and then brown and then die. And then there'll just be mud. If you kept walking back in that forth on that same place for long enough, eventually you'd dig a rut in the ground. And eventually, if you kept doing it, you'd disappear from sight. Much of our life, we actually spend... We've followed these sort of unconscious patterns, so familiar, so often, that we actually disappear from sight. We lose consciousness. We don't actually know where we are anymore because we're in such a deep, familiar rut. And the rut takes many forms and many expressions, but its underlying movement, its underlying attraction, is somehow this feeling that something is missing, that something is wrong, that something needs to be fixed, and that we have to somehow get something, or get somewhere else, or someone other, or become somebody else, in order to resolve our life. But we're so busy and we're moving so fast in that process trying to get to that place or that person or that situation that actually we don't really have any time or any space to notice where we are or even notice what we're doing and whether it's truly serving us. It's like we're always reaching out for something and we're always off balance reaching towards this or pulling away from that and we feel that the only way to to find balance is to run even faster towards or away from. But, you know, that's exhausting. There's no rest. There's no rest in living in that way. And when we come on retreat, you know, we come, we sit down, you know, it's not particularly demanding activity, watch your breath, go for a quiet walk, come back. We find that we're exhausted, barely staying awake. How does that happen? Some of it is actually the residue of a life in which we've been running, chasing, pushing, seeking to pursue or to escape, without stopping and questioning, does this truly serve me? Does this truly contribute to my well-being and my capacity to be of benefit in this world? It is possible for us to learn another way to live, another way to be in this world. And while this tradition and these teachings come from Asia, the Buddha having lived in India two and a half thousand years ago, and the teachings haven't been preserved primarily in Asia, in this tradition particularly in Southeast Asia. While that might be the case, this wisdom is not something born just of that tradition. I sometimes reflect on a, um, a little notice, one of those sort of sweet little signs that you can sometimes find in places that was in my neighbour's kitchen when I was growing up as a child and would often visit this time. They were good family, close family friends. And there was just that little, one of those little notices that said, don't worry, don't hurry. 
and don't forget to smell the flowers. So much wisdom in that. We spend our life, it seems, caught up in worries and anxieties, feeling under pressure, hurrying from one thing to the next, seeking to somehow resolve those worries. And in the process, forgetting, or not being able to connect with and to contact, to receive the nourishment that is around us. The nourishment that might simply be the fragrance of the flower. And of course, you know, exactly what that looks like is different for each of us because I saw this cartoon on the notice board in the manager's dining room recently which was a cow sitting on top of a hill with its legs crossed and obviously it was a, a wise cow. This other cow had come to see it for, um, for teachings, it would seem, and the thing was it was saying something like, and as you go through life, you know, don't worry, don't hurry, and don't forget to eat the flowers. Perhaps for cows that's what makes sense the spirit of that sense of what nourishes us what truly nourishes us we need to be concerned with this because what is important to us what we truly value this we need to give the energy and the attention of our life to if what we truly seek is to understand is to develop a wisdom in life to discover a wisdom in life that enables us to live in harmony with the way things are with the truth of our life as we find it, not the life that we wish it was or the life that somebody told us it would be or that we think it should be, but the actual life that we've got. If we want to learn to live in harmony with this, we need to understand this life, this experience that we're having right here and right now. And equally, if we wish to be able to respond to our life and to our world with compassion, with kindness, And I think spiritual teachings in all traditions would acknowledge that the cultivation of wisdom and the manifestation of compassion are essentially what a spiritual life is all about. If we wish to do this, then we need to look at how we live. To look at the the way our culture sets us up and the culture of the external world, the materialism and the, the, the busyness and pressure of Western life, and equally the inner culture, the way we relate, the way we understand what is useful and what is not. To see whether a life of simply producing and consuming, a life of pursuing and avoiding, <coughs> whether this is actually serving us, whether this actually leads to happiness and well-being. We need to ask ourselves this question. We can't ask anyone else, because their life is their life. So what do we notice if we ask that question? You know, we can be chasing, pursuing, seeking to attain particular things, job, relationship, house, family, you know, possessions. We can in meditation, similarly, be trying to have a pleasant mind state, a nice experience, perhaps something cosmic would be nice after a few days, you know, whatever it might be. But look at what goes on. The experiences that we have around us, people, situations, the experience that happened within are not in our control. I mean, it's like the first insight of insight meditation. You say to your mind, okay, watch the breath. What does your mind do? Watch the breath? Well, maybe one or two if you're lucky. You know, some people report some mild embarrassment that they can only watch two or three breaths in a row and the rest of us are thinking, wow, two or three in a row? You know, <laughs> great. 
feeling rather pleased if we've got to the end of the in-breath without losing it. And yet our intention is to be there, but it doesn't happen. Because we can't just do it as an act of will. We can't just make it happen. And seeing that mind and body, you know, body, we don't say body, be uncomfortable. Okay, I'll be uncomfortable for the day. That sounds like a good idea. We come here, we would rather probably be at ease. But body, what does body do? It says, oh, okay, you can be at ease for a while. And then it says, oh, look at me. Pay attention to this. It's saying, hello, this is your knee calling. This is your back calling. You know, and we don't suddenly feel so at ease. Mind and body don't do what we say. They don't stay the same. They change. They move. Equally as does the weather. And the seasons. And the flow of our life. And yet, despite that rather uncontrollable and changing reality that we actually acknowledge, I mean, no one would say if you asked them that things always stay the same. But do we understand what that means for how we live? If we are constantly chasing after experiences, believing that if we can get the right experience, it will somehow provide us lasting satisfaction then we're bound to be disappointed because no experience can last forever. And if we spend so much time running away from the difficult, we might wonder if that makes sense given that no experience, no matter how difficult, can last forever. Because this is the nature of experience. And we see it as we see the breath come in only to leave, to rise and to fall. Every experience has that nature. But something in us doesn't quite believe that. You know, Something in us has got a rather remarkable degree of hopefulness. We shouldn't feel bad about that, but we need to understand it. I mean, there's a good, good story um, told about Mullah Nasruddin, who's a, uh, a, a Sufi figure used as a, as a sort of a teaching figure in, the, in stories. And he's something of a wise man and also something of a fool. Although one might suspect that his foolishness is simply to wake us up to our own. And the story is told that one day um, Nazruddin was sitting in the village square on a market day and he'd purchased a large pile of bright red hot chilies. He was picking them up one at a time and eating them. And his face was red and flushed. He was obviously in quite a degree of discomfort. His nose was running. His eyes were streaming. And his friends came up to him and said, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? He said, I'm eating these chilies. Picked up another one, bit into it, and... Uh, his whole body sort of shook with the, the heat and the obvious pain that it was being caused and you know, a whole new stream of fluid pouring out. And, and they said, Mullah, Mullah, we can see you're eating chilies. Why are you eating those chilies? And he said, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. <laughs> Have we seen that in ourselves? That we keep hoping that the next thing the next place, the next experience, the next sitting or the next walking, the next moment is going to be the one. It's like we sometimes we sometimes feel that <coughs> we have all the time in the world. <coughs> all the time in the world. But we don't. If there are lessons to be learned from our life, we've probably all of us lived enough 
to learn them. We may not need to make the same mistakes again and again. We don't need to keep picking up more chilies and eating them to know that chilies are of the nature to be hot. We don't need to keep picking up more experiences or projecting onto situations or people or things the hope that somehow they can do for us what no other experience has been able to. Because if any of them could, surely one of them would have by now and we'd have stopped. Wouldn't it? And to see that we don't have forever to learn this lesson. To start to understand that this condition of being alive is not forever. This is something that perhaps brings us to a a place of spiritual inquiry. To realize that this is not forever. The story is told in one of the uh, great Indian classics, and I'm not sure if it's the Mahabharata or the Ramayana. but it's the story of a great battle and after which Arjuna, who is the hero of the story, is speaking with Krishna, who is his charioteer and who represents wisdom in the story. Arjuna asks Krishna, he says, and Krishna is one of the gods in the, in the, in the Hindu pantheon and therefore great, great a capacity to see and to know all things. In your vast vision of the universe, what is the greatest miracle? asks Arjuna. And Krishna replies, The greatest miracle is that while all around them people see others dying, they do not believe that it will happen to themselves. And again, none of us us are probably going to deny if anyone asks us that we're mortal, that we will come to an end of this life. But do we actually truly believe that in a way that informs how we live? Because if we don't, then at some level we haven't truly understood this. The Buddha once compared our human life, and if we spend it simply chasing experience, running after this, running away from that, he likened the situation to children playing with their toys in a house that was on fire. And you know, sometimes we're sitting in meditation and it's so hard to stay awake. It's like, oh, you know, it's just, it's just such an effort. We feel like, you know, we just could melt into the ground. It's like, you know, our, our backbone has become jelly. And as far as, you know, intending to be present, it's sort of, sort of this vague idea that we don't really have any relationship to. And we're convinced that really, you know, there's not a drop of juice left in the system. It's out of gas. We might as well just let it you know, fall over. And yet, you know, suddenly the fire alarm went off. We smelt smoke. How alert and awake would we be in the next moment? Would we be sitting there, oh, I'm a bit tired to get up. No, I think I'll just lie down and rest. No, we'd be out that door in moments. So we might need to ask ourselves, just how interested are we in being awake? How interested are we in being present? And without wanting to set up any expectations of uh, needing to sort of emulate such things, certainly the stories that are told to us of great practitioners and masters of meditation can be quite inspiring. And one hears stories of uh, sort of Tibetan lamas who would meditate cross-legged on the edges of great precipices 
knowing that if they fell asleep and tumbled forward, they were gone. And, you know, it takes some real commitment to do that. Or, um, <laughs> something that might be a little closer to what's possible for us to imagine is that it's an incredible story I read of a Korean Zen master, Master Kusan, who was the teacher of Martin Batchelor and a good friend and one of the guiding teachers here at Gaia House. She was with him for 10 years in Korea. And he describes in his book how he came on a retreat and he was really feeling committed to this retreat, but he was very drowsy. And realizing that he was overwhelmed with drowsiness and so tired that he really wanted to practice he made the resolution to practice standing on tiptoes for a whole week. We got a week. Do you have problems with falling asleep? Standing on tiptoes will solve it. You know, again, I'm not suggesting you actually do that. I think it's kind of remarkable that someone could. And one might just be inspired to think, well, what can I do? How important is it to me to be awake? How important is it to me to actually do what it takes to be here? Why would we choose to make that kind of effort? (coughs) Simply because this is our life. And what we give support to in our life is what our life will show, will reveal, will be. So what is important to us? To stop and connect when we engage with practice, particularly as we enter into a period of practice, and particularly again if it may be at times challenging, to stop and connect with our aspiration, with what it is that moves us most deeply in our lives, which we may express to ourselves in many different ways, but I think essentially comes down to the wish that we all have to live well, the wish that we have to live well, and yet equally the recognition that we don't always succeed in doing so. That it's like we wish to be happy or to be at peace. And yet this doesn't just happen by accident or of its own accord. We we almost need to understand our life in order to be able to live wisely, live in harmony with it. And insight meditation is to seek to understand our life to understand, almost as if to stand under, stand under our life, to to be humble in the face of what our life may seek to teach us, rather than suggesting or believing that we already know how it should be, and that it should fit in with the way we want it, rather than understanding that perhaps it's for us to learn to live with the way that it is. To see that when it comes to living well, we don't necessarily know how to do that. We need to give ourselves permission to make mistakes, to begin again, permission to try things that are new, to enter into another moment, into this moment, completely fresh, without carrying any expectation or baggage of what it should be or how we'd like it to be, but to just meet it as it is. to be able to begin again and again. And we can see that something starts to happen in this process. The Buddha himself would regularly suggest and encourage us, encourage practitioners 
people such as ourselves seeking to explore meditation, to live a spiritual life, to connect with our own basic goodness, to recall the kind actions, the kind intentions, the acts of generosity or of nobility that have been part of our life. Acknowledging, of course, that there's been more to our life than just those. But to not just emphasise all the places where we've got it wrong, all the times we've messed up, all the ways we could have done it better or improved, of course there's room for that, or we wouldn't be here. But equally not to make that the only thing we notice. To honour the goodness of our aspiration, and yet equally to acknowledge the humanness of the way that we are not perfectly able to manifest that aspiration, to bring it into our lives. To be in touch with that aspiration, to live well, to be of service to others, to be of service to our own life, to this world. This is what actually sustains us through practice. This is what enables us to make the intention and to sustain the energy that's needed for practice for being present, for connecting. And, you know, it can be quite hard at times, can't it, meditation? Now we've said, simple, yes, easy, no. But that's a bit like life too, isn't it? Our body, our mind, our heart. We experience difficult things in these realms in our life, equally in our meditation. It's not because of the meditation that it's happening. It's just in meditation we see it rather more clearly. And perhaps we take away a lot of the avenues of escaping from it that we use to prevent ourselves from truly acknowledging what's going on. So here we cultivate attentiveness. We cultivate mindfulness through coming back again and again, through sustaining and reconnecting with that intention just to be here to just notice one breath, to just notice one moment, to recognize the place where we just lose it and we're gone. Not out of a judgment or a criticism of it, but just to see that that happens, to see how it happens. It's never random. It's something that pulls us or pushes us, always. And we come to see, come to understand that cultivating mindfulness, cultivating presence, enables us to make wise choices. It is in fact the foundation of wise choices, of discriminating wisdom. The wisdom that allows us to know that which serves us and that which does not. To choose pathways, to cultivate qualities which actually enrich and ennoble our lives. Qualities of kindness, of patience, of gentleness, of perseverance, of inquiry, and many others. These we actually cultivate through our practice, through coming back again and again, through opening to whatever it is that we find, that quality of receptivity that I spoke about this morning, and being genuinely interested in what we see. Not the intellectual interest of thinking about and analysing, but the interest that is the kind of interest we might have in something we find ourselves deeply attracted to that we just simply want to be close to. Now you perhaps enjoy some of the beautiful trees or flowers in the garden, and there's just a natural sense of wanting to be close to it. That kind of interest that allows us to be close to, 
without trying to take hold of or grasp onto to just be with to see however that much of the time we're kind of caught in a pattern whereby we tend to react to experiences that are pleasant by trying to grab hold of them experiences that are unpleasant by pushing them away and other experiences that are kind of neither by sort of not being interested at all like the breathing for most of us it's kind of neutral you know it's not like a movie you can watch a movie for 45 minutes without a problem you know and actually we watch some of the movies in our minds for 45 minutes without too many problems either but the breath is kind of neutral it's not that exciting it's not causing us any great grief just the breath you know one breath in breath out breath down but this tendency to either grab hold of to push away or to be disinterested in actually disconnects us from where we are disconnects us from what is actually happening and has the effect of leaving us in a condition where we're lost where we don't know where we are anymore because of that tendency that incredibly strong tendency that we have that we enact unconsciously we need to be present we need to be conscious in order to see what's going on or else we have no choice in the matter when we're present sometimes it might seem much of the time you know with the breath in the next moment I'm somewhere else don't know what happened but if we keep watching if we keep coming back if we keep interested without judging that process or criticizing it but just watching it we start to see something oh it wasn't just a random event we see oh that's why this is what drew me out it wasn't just that I wanted a story it was that this story looked exciting more exciting than my breath or it looked like this was an escape from my uncomfortable body we start to see what's going on and then we can choose whether or not it truly serves us the spirit of our practice is not to question do I like this is this what I think should be happening and if it's not then say it shouldn't be you know some people open the windows I wish they'd shut them other people shuffle on their cushion I wish they'd be quiet you know there's people up the front talk too much I wish they'd not say so much in the silence or the people up the front they don't say enough I wish they'd give me more instructions you know we hear these both um, at times we just do what we do and yet we can see how this tendency to relate to our life comes into meditation we see in ourselves those voices saying I like this I don't like that fix this change that can we just watch it with interest rather than believing in it to see what can we learn here some of these practices may be familiar to you some of them new some of you might like certain religious aspects of its teaching some of you might not like them some of you might want there to be more of that some of you might want less but can you just look at that and see what can be learned here rather than do I like it this shift is the shift that defines the movement from a worldly life to a spiritual life not whether we sit cross-legged sitting here cross-legged trying to get a good experience you might as well go outside and lie in the sun and try and get a good experience it's not that different we're down to the shop which is quite a walk from here unfortunately or maybe fortunately but we see our minds doing it not to judge our mind for doing it but to see it and say what can I learn here the bottom line is we're not going to learn much if we're not present because then it's just going on without us knowing so we come back again and again to see to learn 
to connect and not just because we can learn in that process but equally because it nourishes us it is challenging and yet in order to be able to learn and to grow we need to be willing to be challenged it's all very well to stay in safe territory but actually even in all of you coming here you've already expressed the willingness to step out of what is safe and what is controllable and what is known whether you knew you were doing that or not that's part of what you've done and so to be willing to stay with that to not all too quickly decide oh I've had enough of that I want to get it back under control I want to try and make it as comfortable as I possibly can here not that we seek discomfort but we seek to understand comfort and discomfort and to understand what it is to live well in a world that presents these experiences to us so be really gentle with yourself regarding what arises times when you can be present times when you can't be notice what happens with the clear intention to be present to not react to not get caught up and yet when you do lose it space out react get caught up ah that's what happened it's okay you can begin again the present moment has an infinite capacity to forgive us by offering us the chance to simply begin again with no history no need to worry about the last meditation the last breath or the last moment just this one and equally not to be concerned about the next one just this one is all we're ever asked to be with to connect with and to open to and as we start to do that we see that although it's hard to make that effort to be present in each moment it seems easy just to say oh, you know I've done this enough I'll space out I'll just give up you know next time I'll come back and you know I'm going to sleep through this sitting but the next sitting I'm really going to do it or the next walking I won't sort of sit under a tree all for 45 minutes I'll you know sometimes it's appropriate to sit under a tree of course but uh, sometimes it's appropriate to do the walking meditation and yet although it's hard to do that to be present to make that effort on a moment to moment level to understand that ultimately it's harder if we don't to live our life unconsciously is to constantly get entangled in incredibly painful and unsatisfying inner patterns that seem to overwhelm us and that seem to bind us in a way that we experience our life as unfree as bound as limited and is deeply unsatisfying in many ways to actually be willing to engage in the practice of being present of being mindful of being awake taking the whole range of our life our day and our experience as the interest as the point of interest just whatever is in this moment to do this we actually realize that we free ourselves from the tendency or we begin to free ourselves from the tendency to unconsciously engage in ways of behaving that don't serve us that undermine our well-being that hurt others that we can so often find ourselves later regretting perhaps even blaming or judging ourselves for and yet to be honest we weren't really there when it happened we weren't really there when it happened if we'd been there we'd have made a choice maybe not to so we make the effort to be there to make those crucial choices knowing that some of the time we won't manage it but that we can always come back and that as we come back again and again just like any muscle if you exercise it it gets stronger 
We can't expect after, you know, two, three, four, five, however many decades of our life of not bothering to make the effort to be present that suddenly when we say, attend to your breath, it will happen. Not like that. But if we sustain that, we find that it comes, it develops. And not just are we more able to be present, but we start to connect with a a quality of vitality, of authenticity, of an aliveness that is there in the moment when we're simply present. Irrespective of what it is that we're present with, but that we're simply present. We use the breath to develop, to cultivate and to deepen this capacity because it can be cultivated, it can be deepened. And yet in that deepening it equally touches all things, each moment and everything in our life. We start to find that it's actually less work to be in touch with our life than to be out of touch with it even though being in touch with it is sometimes uncomfortable. If we're not willing to be in touch with the uncomfortable, we equally lose touch with that which is nourishing, that which brings vitality, that which is beautiful and is nourishing and sweet in life. So this quality of presence that we cultivate, this capacity to connect with where we are, This is something that it actually starts to bring us back into a more natural condition of mind, which is simple presence, which is simple being. Beingness, we could say, rather than the habitual doingness and the busyness and the stress that that creates. Learning simply to be. It's not something we have to do, but it's simply what we discover when our mind is not in the grip of craving and of fear or of disinterest. So when we see those movements, we learn to recognize them for what they are, not to despair, not to judge them, or to criticize them, but to understand that they are not who we are. They're simply patterns, habits, and tendencies that we can learn to respond to skillfully. Not by trying to push away, but nor by having to act them out, but just by watching, by observing them, coming to know them see that ultimately they have no power over us other than what we give to them when we do not understand them. To understand then in that simple presence of being that there is an inherent and natural lawfulness to life is what we come to understand, is what we come to discover through simple practice of meditation. Ultimately, we we start to see, we start to recognize that in fact, it is our our lack, it it is in not being present, and not being connected, and not paying attention, not being awake, that this is in fact the basis of the suffering of our life. In our sleep, our unconsciousness, we cause and we experience so much pain, and so much unsatisfactoriness, so much a sense of of yearning for something deeper or richer than what perhaps we have found. And the more that we're present, the more that we learn that it's possible for us to actually be awake just here, just now, in this life, in this moment, we see that we do not need to escape from our life. We do not need to fix it or to get something else and bring it into it. 
but to learn to live wisely in the face of it and the very midst of it. In this we find the space and the possibility of holding that which is challenging or difficult and equally of opening ourselves to receiving that which is precious and profound, that which is peaceful and beautiful in life. And it is this which we are engaged with in this meditation practice and in this retreat. Can we just sit quietly for a moment or two please? with the goodness of their aspiration to live well. May all beings abide in simple presence. May all beings awaken to peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.